0: Wives in the same way be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold, jewellery and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as a weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Well, God, uh, your word is really clear and uh, succinct on a whole bunch of things. And, uh, it's really clear and succinct, particularly in this area of marriage and uh, what a what a marriage, what marriage is meant to look like and what it's meant to display. Uh, so Lord, today, as we look at, um, in particular, men and husbands, uh, Lord, I pray that we would be, uh, I guess that you would open our eyes and that we would have a submissive and willing attitude uh, to listen to you and follow what you say. Uh, God, oftentimes when you come in and you show us or you, you uh you open our eyes to what the way things are meant to be. It can be really hard truth and uh, it can be really difficult to perhaps accept and put into practice. Uh, but Lord, I pray that we would actually see it as a gift, uh, that when we come into alignment with you, that we, when we come into uh, following you and in willing submission with your will, Lord God, that uh, we would see that as a gift, uh, not as a hard um, stubborn thing that we've got to drag ourselves into, but a gift and an opportunity uh, to truly have life. So I invite your Holy Spirit, come and do uh, marvellous work today, I pray. Amen. Amen. As we look at this uh, scripture today, I'm focusing in particular on verse 7, uh, which is men, basically, and husbands. And so what I'd like to do today is to open up and uh, give a bit of an overview, broad overview, of uh, Of the biblical call for what it means to be a man, Uh, and then next week I'm hoping to then go back to verses one to six, uh, which talks about a lot about what it means to be a woman, but also a wife. Um, And and for some of you, you may be thinking, "Who is this young guy coming to tell me what to do and how to live my life?" All right, Uh, which you're probably right. I'm a young dude, and. Really, don't have a right to tell you what to do with your life. But what we do believe here at the the project is that the Bible is uh, supreme in its authority in in teaching us how we should live and showing us uh, what true life is actually all about. And that's my goal today: is that uh, we'd be able to look at the Bible and uh, and that eyes would be open. Uh, I've been married for the last seven years to my lovely wife Renee, and. And I've loved it. It's truly a joy. It's just a beautiful part of my life uh, in being married to Renee and uh, enjoying that for the last seven years. Uh, I'm also growing in my understanding of what it means to be a man. Coming out here and starting the project has uh, most likely been the, a, a pinnacle point in my life of learning what it means to be a man. Uh, the thirty meeting together with other men to actually call each other to account and uh, to somehow open up the way for what it means to be a man has also been tremendous and huge help uh, in actually transforming my life into the likeness of Christ. And that's my hope today. That's my hope is that uh, as we learn what it means to be men, as uh, women learn what it means to uh, what it, what it is to see a man and uh, and understand what a man is. Uh, that, yeah, our eyes would be open. Uh, It's interesting. Uh, As a church, and probably my own life growing up, uh, this whole idea of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, and that there's actually clearly defined roles within the church, within marriage, within culture itself, uh, was generally not really spoken about and not very well defined. Personally, I didn't really have any idea. Obviously, the plumbing, you have a man and you have a woman. Yeah, uh, But actually, what that actually means, what, it, what does it mean when a man lives out his life? What does it mean when a woman lives out her life? Uh, and it has, wasn't until I started, I actually preached this, uh, this particular scripture maybe two years ago and I started looking into it and started to really define some uh, clear aspects of manhood and womanhood. But the truth is, is that if we don't define it in the church, if we don't uh, look at scripture, and we don't have it well defined within the church that other people are going to define it for us. Uh, you might look on TV at the moment and uh, see there's a new show called Puberty Blues. Anybody seen that? Puberty Blues. Maybe you've already started watching it. Uh, my hope is that if you watch it, that you would watch it with uh, really um, discerning eyes and uh, discerning ears so that you'd be able to discern truth and what, what is actually culture trying to per, uh, teach you out of that. But it's pretty clear in that that uh, being a man is getting chicks and uh, sleeping with them. And being a girl is selling yourself as much as possible. Or being a woman is selling yourself as much as possible so that that would be uh, able to happen. And, uh, and it's just a dangerous, dangerous place. I noticed in the advertising for uh, that particular show, it's like the coming of age of Australian drama. Like this is it. We've reached our pinnacle. This is amazing. And isn't it so dangerous Uh, if if we just let that suck in Uh, there was a quote by uh, by some guys and it's up on the screen there contemporary expectations of marriage place a high value on meeting the somewhat ambiguous desires for mutuality intimacy happiness and self-fulfillment a more daunting task perhaps than fulfilling the more modest and rigidly defined expectations associated with traditional breadwinner husband and homemaker wife roles. This is uh, this is most likely going to be a challenge if if we've never actually looked at it biblically, uh, and if we if we've never actually if if culture has just been uh, what's teaching us about manhood and womanhood. John Piper puts it this way in uh, in his book called What's the Difference. He wrote a whole book, and uh, he's had significant contributions to a uh, a paper over in in the United States. That the Baptist uh, movement is actually using to help to define this thing of manhood and womanhood, and particularly in marriage and all the uh, implications of that. But he says it this way The tendency today is to, is to stress the equality of men and women by minimizing the unique significance of our maleness or femaleness. But this depreciation of male and female personhood is a great loss. It is taking a tremendous toll on generations of young men and women. They do not know what it means to be a man or a woman. Confusion over the meaning of sexual personhood today is epidemic. The consequences of this confusion is not a free and happy harmony among gender-free persons relating on the basis of abstract competencies. The consequence rather is more divorce, more homosexuality, more sexual abuse, more promiscuity, more social awkwardness and more emotional distress and suicide that come with the loss of God-given identity. Little help is being given to a son's question. Dad, what does it mean to be a man and not and not a woman? Or a daughter's question. Mum, what does it mean to be a woman and not a man? And you see, it's just under challenge. It's under pressure. Uh, this whole idea about identity. Uh, being a teacher I, and a PE teacher, I often have uh, resources. People send me resources all the time. about about what we can teach in health Um, and and one of the particular ones there's always because it's such a uh, I guess a contemporary issue it's an age-old issue but it's a contemporary issue is uh, growing up gay and so they would expect that within this uh, within PE and within health that this would be a natural part and normal part uh, about teaching our children about growing up gay uh, interesting I think it's a, a uh, understanding of our culture I remember listening to CFM radio station one day and uh, and super nerds was the topic and one bloke rang up pretty excited and uh, pretty like yeah this is what I'm doing he's he's ringing up to say I'm getting a divorce over a computer game that was uh, that was a big deal that was like yes <laughs> I'm doing the right thing here computer games more important to me than my marriage I'm getting a divorce Uh, It's interesting as you think about the normalizing of divorce and separation has become apparent coupled with the growing number of parents or couples separating and living under the same roof with the only thing holding them together being the children, the mortgage or the business. Or the growing trend of counseling resources that would uh, help to counsel children to normalize somehow this thing where parents have been divorced and separated. And most likely there's people sitting here right now who have experienced that. But the truth is, is, this isn't normal, and it's not meant to be the normal. Yes, we do need to help these children, absolutely, but this, isn't not, this is not meant to be the normal, and uh, most of us would probably know that. Maybe it's the apparent uh, husbands who tear the house apart because of the argument he had with the missus. Uh, maybe it's helping ch- children understand why dad has run off with another woman or vice versa. It doesn't take long to have a look at culture around us or perhaps even a searching of your own life and you'll quickly find that marriage has either had a wonderful and healthy influence or it's had a deeply scathing influence on your life. And my hope today is that somehow as we look at Scripture we would be able to paint a picture, a much grander picture than that and that there is hope that for young people sitting here that for people who are yet to be married that yes, marriage is actually quite possible. Yes, there's going to be issues. Yes, there's going to be things to deal with in marriage. But yes, it's quite possible by the grace of God to do what he intended for it to do. Uh, Maybe called traditional, what I'm about to preach and what we're about to look at, maybe actually be called traditional in uh, in our culture. And people would maybe have a go at us that this is sort of past the years by date. That was like, 60s. That was 60s, 70s sort of stuff. This isn't what we do now. You need to get up with contemporary definitions and contemporary ideas. Uh, And this is the problem is that we as humans tend to deceive ourselves uh, and to think that we will actually do a better job of defining what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, and what marriage looks like. That we're actually going to do a better job than that. And uh, when we finally turn to God and he has some stuff to say about it, Probably in our pride, we go, "Yeah, that's nice," but we probably just want to squash it down and twist it round and make it just the way we like it. So we don't have to deal with the hard truths that God would present, uh, but actually, uh, actually, just do what we like to do anyway. So instead, my hope for this morning is that we would take this as a gift, and that what may be controversial, what may be uh, taken as really hard truth, would actually be a gift. And uh, that when we start to see our eyes opened and when scripture is uh, revealed to us, uh, that it's a gift for life. And it's a gift for the way that God intended it to be. So next week I'm going to, uh, before I do that, I want to read you a quote from Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot is uh, the wife of Jim Elliot, who was a missionary that went into Africa. Uh, if I get that right, Africa. And uh, he was actually killed by the tribe, the very tribe that he was trying to be a missionary to. And uh, Elizabeth Elliot, his wife, ended up a couple of years later going into that same tribe and uh, ministering and being a missionary in that tribe. And she made this quote. So she's just a hero of the faith. She has obviously been through deep and uh, hard times in her life. But she had this quote about what it means, uh, what we actually need in men. The world cries for men who are strong, strong in conviction, strong to lead, to stand, to suffer. I pray you will be that kind of man, glad that God made you a man, glad to shoulder the burden of manliness in a time when to do so will often bring contempt. This morning as I preach and as I teach uh, to particularly men, uh, The goal is that, yes, I'm a man myself, and I'm a man learning to be a man, okay? And so when I preach this, I actually preach it to myself just as much as I would preach it uh, to you. Um, But we actually get to go right back to creation, and you look at the story of creation. When God created man, uh, when God created man and woman, he created the whole world, um, it sets the stage for what it, for manhood and uh, for womanhood and particularly for marriage. Uh, God created Adam first. He created Adam first in all the creative order, and there was order. It was a cool part about creation that He did it in order. Uh, he didn't just say, "Bam," and everything's there. Man, woman, creation, trees, animals. No, He did. He did it with order, which is a cool part about God. But in the order that he created man, he created—sorry—in the order that he created people, he created men men first, and uh, and Adam was the first. And his design was that Adam would actually be the head. Uh, he gave him responsibility and he gave him dominion over creation, that he would name animals, that he would work the land and he'd provide food. But he also created him to be the head of his soon-to-be family, and to be the leader of his soon-to-be family. Uh, it wasn't good for him to be alone, so God created for Adam a helper, fit for him. And oftentimes this idea of a woman being a helper can be like, what, I'm just a helper? No way, I'm not just going to be a helper. That's such a derogatory thing. And the truth is that uh, the Holy Spirit actually came as the helper. So God himself was a helper. It wasn't just, it wasn't, that's not a derogatory thing. The Holy Spirit comes with great power has great uh, impact in people's lives and as the helper it's a significant role so uh, it's not a derogatory term for the woman but the thing is they're both created equally in the image of God man and woman created equally in the image of God equal in value equal in purpose but different in their roles not just different in their plumbing and their sexuality but different in their roles God had a specific role for Adam and a specific role for Eve. God officiates then the first marriage. He brought Eve to Adam like a father brings his bride uh, his daughter, sorry, down the aisle at a church. He brings the daughter to Adam, and he officiates the first marriage. Adam sings a love song, and he named her woman, and they became one flesh in sexual union. Take note men. Uh, there's a particular part in chapter two, verse 24. It says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and get married and enjoy sexual sexual intimacy with his wife as opposed to the current day trend which is let's live together, let's try this thing out and then let's get married. Uh, interestingly, my wife had a conversation with a friend of hers uh, quite recently and this friend was from school and they ended up, ha- her and her boyfriend lived together had plenty of children, I think they had four children and uh and we enjoy hanging out with them and catching up with them. But recently they got married and Renee had a conversation with her uh, just after that and it, in particular, it was just she, she was just amazed. She said, I'm just amazed at what marriage has done for us. Suddenly, I always knew my, uh, my husband loved me, but he's actually loving me with a completely different view, a completely different attitude. And uh, it, it was like, a, man, I wish we'd done this back at the start. Can't believe we've waited this long. We've missed out. And honestly, it's probably because there's an order. God created with an order that men would do that, that men would leave their father and mother. They'd go out and if it's right, they would get a bride, they would get married and then enjoy sexual intimacy with each other, live together after that. So it continues on. They're placed in the garden called Eden where they enjoyed perfection and union with God. Then Satan comes and ends up engaging with Eve and Satan basically says you don't want to believe God uh, you want to believe me don't, don't listen to God you know is, is what God really said is it really going to bring you life are you really going to be happier and satisfied with that and uh, to some extent Eve goes yep you know what I'm going to question God as well I'm not happy with that uh, I'm just going to listen to you Satan and so they take the truth the truth gets twisted up messed up Eve gets deceived uh, and thought that God was holding out on her The question here is, where was Adam? And we know that Adam was right there, standing there, because he took some of the fruit and ate. Eve gave it to him. And so he passively stood beside and said, "Uh, you know what, I don't know what to do here. Who knows what he was thinking. But he didn't do anything. And sometimes it's, uh, as as we think about sinning, we think about the things that we commit, the things that we do. I did this wrong, so I sinned. And sometimes, like Adam here, it's actually the things that we don't do. And particularly for men, this is a, uh, a sinful tendency, is that we omit to do things. That we stand beside and we stand, stand alongside and just don't do anything at all because we'd rather maybe keep our ego. We'd rather uh, not ruffle any feathers. Uh, so we stand beside and, and we take this passive uh, engagement. So then God comes on his evening stroll with Adam and Eve who were hiding from each other and from God because of their shame. And God called out to Adam. What? Adam? But Eve was the one who sinned. That's weird. Why would God call out to Adam first? Well, if you, uh, if you look into it, and as I've done a bit of reading about it, uh, God called out to Adam uh, because it was, the role, it was his role to actually be looking out for his wife. And he was actually responsible for the things that she ended up doing. Not wholly and solely, Eve was responsible as well because then the curse was handed down to both of them. But God came to Adam because Adam's responsibility as a man was to look out for her. Adam's responsibility as a man was to uh, protect her and to step in when things weren't going well. That's the way way men were meant to be. Uh, But... (coughs) Adam, where are you? What, what happened? God made no mistake in calling to Adam because it was his intention that Adam would be head and leader of the family, taking chief responsibility for his and his family's actions. Look at the curse on the relationship. Eve's curse was uh, that her desire would be for her husband. And, and the word desire used there is actually the word that's used later on when uh, sin, sin's desire was to rule over Cain. Uh, and it's the same word desire there so Eve, part of the curse was that Eve as the woman as the wife would actually rule over her husband and his, her desire would be for her husband and it would be to dominate him and it would be to oppose him and it would be to come up against him rather than to submit lovingly to him and to follow his lead and to Adam uh, part of his curse was that his wife uneasily respect him and he would desire to rule over her with might and strength rather than to lead her which was what it was meant to be and it was at this point, and uh, in, in the things I was reading, it was at this point that uh, it became really apparent that it wasn't, the roles hadn't changed. They'd just been distorted. The role of the man to lead his wife, the role of Adam to lead his wife, hadn't changed. God actually, after the curse, God actually still wanted that to happen. But it had been distorted by sin. It had been messed up. So it wasn't the same way it was meant to be. But this is God's story and Eve's, uh, Sorry, and not Adam's, Eve's or Satan's. So God hadn't finished. God could have said, you know what? You did the wrong thing and you're gone because that was what was going to happen. You eat this tree, eat from the fruit of this tree and you'll die. You'll surely die. But he didn't. It's God's story. So he steps in, he goes for his stroll. He does bring about punishment and curse but he actually clothes them. He makes clothes for them. He provides for them. And we see in this that... Although we may be living in hell in our marriages, although men, we as men have failed, although we as men have not done what we're meant to do in standing in, in protecting, in defending, in being strong, in having conviction, there's opportunity for redemption. There's opportunity for hard truth to hit us and uh, to change us. And uh, this, is, this is where we come in now. Also, I'd like to uh, just before I get right into the uh, verse 7 of that scripture. Look at, uh, look at what happens in our culture. One of the, uh, study, one of the things that I was reading, and uh, it came up that there was four extremes that we have typically gone to in our culture. And it's up here on the screen. So you look at the effeminate left. And this is the ideology that all is one. And what happens here, particularly with men, is that men get weakened. Uh, So if you hold to this ideology, and there's all sorts of different subcultures within our culture that hold to this ideology, and to all four in fact. Um, But I would say at the moment we're probably swinging to the left side. There is pockets of the right side, but uh, we're probably swinging to the left side. And so on the effeminate left, all is one. Everyone's equal, Uh, no one has different roles, no one has different sexuality, we're all equal. Um, So men tend to get weakened. They can't actually live with the strength that they're meant to live and the conviction that they're meant to live. Uh, They tend to get weakened. Uh, And it also has the defeminization of women. So women no longer can naturally be women and enjoy being a woman, but instead they have to somehow become like a man uh, and act like a man, behave like a man. And you, I'm sure, will be able to think of examples of that uh, within our culture. Feminized religion in churches... This impacts every area of life. If you have this worldview, if you have this thinking, it impacts so many different areas. Uh, It feminises religion in churches so that when we have uh, churches and the way churches are run, uh, it tends to have a very feminised approach. So again, men can't be men and men can't lead the way they're meant to lead. Uh, In sport, if if you take this to its extreme, there's no competition. I got taught through uni as a PE teacher. Uh, everybody's a winner you can't have winners and losers everybody must be a winner and it's a clear example as I read this I was like oh, this is exactly right so it's this almost it's the effeminate left where uh, you're not allowed to have competition because everyone must be equal the truth is yeah we do have competition yeah it's good to have competition it's actually healthy uh, but then you look over the other side but look at that in a minute in education uh, this may not be the case in Australia, but I'm sure it is across the world. All male schools, so single gender male schools, end up being prohibited by law. And there's also prohibitions against educating boys and girls separately. Why? Because everyone must be equal. Everyone must have, uh, exactly the same. Must be exactly the same. We can't actually look at our differences and uh, rejoice in them. Then you go to the next one on the left there, and it's egalitarianism. It's removing or de- denying many differences between men and women. So, this isn't as far fetched as the effeminate side, far left, uh, but it's sort of leading that way. Uh, so, there's no gender based role differences in marriage or anywhere else, i.e., the church. So, men, woman, married, equal, together, can't be any different. We both do, it's like a 50 50 thing. We can't be. Uh, we can't be separate and have different roles and different authority and all that sort of stuff. Again, it's anti-competition in sport. In education, there's a systematic push to make boys and girls do equally well in all subjects. Uh, this was portrayed, I was listening to the ABC radio one night and uh, this particular school, I think it was down uh, Brisbane way, but it was a massive highlight that they had this all girls woodwork class, uh, an all girls uh, uh, techie class basically. and honestly I'm not opposed to that <laughs> but you can see that this is where it's actually going that women have to do the same thing as men because somehow we need to be equal uh, and honestly if I look at culture it's clashing really it's not actually having good it's not actually having good effect same-sex marriages become approved and that's big right now in our Australian society same-sex marriage is a massive thing, massive push that's being, that's being uh, looked at. Mutual submission usually means that the husband's a wimp. So instead of uh, the wife, like 1 Peter's been talking about, submitting to the husband lovingly and the husband leading her, uh, instead uh, the husband becomes a wimp and basically just sits by and does nothing. Similar to Adam who just was passive, sitting there not doing what he was meant to do. Uh, And it ends up that the wife becomes a usurper. And so the wife becomes this, uh, becomes I must be in power and I must make all the decisions and you can't make decisions without me and all this sort of stuff. So it ends up that the wife opposes the husband all the time. And the husband tends to just go, you know what, okay, whatever. (laughs) I'll just do that. I'll head in the same direction. Uh, Then you go to the right and you swing to the other side. These are big generalizations, and I appreciate that. But uh, I'm hoping that it actually gives a bit of an image and a picture for, uh, for the extremes that we tend to go to. Male dominance. Uh, Over-emphasizing the differences between men and women. So on one side, you've got no difference, everyone's equal. Then on the other side, you've got the extreme, we're so different, and uh, you better know that. <laughs> So it overemphasizes it. It's, it says that men are better than women and that excessive competitiveness uh, must be had to show that women are inferior. Women can't be shown as, uh, as strong. Women can't be shown to uh, have greater value or dignity than a man. Uh, husbands as harsh, selfish dictator. So within a marriage, a husband tends to uh, have this dictatorial uh, sort of rulership within the family. And so he dictates everything that needs to happen and the wife just must humbly submit and go, okay, whatever you want, okay, I'll do whatever. Uh, Children tend to do the same. Uh, And the wife ends up becoming like a doormat rather than actually being a wife and uh, learning to enjoy submitting. Uh, Number four, the violent right. And this is where the slogan could be, might makes right. If I've got strength, if I've got power, I'm going to use it and I don't care if I abuse people as I do it. And so within culture you see this, men become brutes, women become objects. Uh, there's a gridiron footy show on at the moment uh, that I think you can get on free to air. Maybe you can only get it on, uh, on um, Foxtel or iStar or whatever. But it's basically women playing gridiron in bras and undies. And so they just become these objects. And men typically fill stadiums, full of stadiums, that uh, they just go and enjoy watching these women clash it out, almost becoming man-like, and they just become these sex, sex objects. So you can see this. this. is You go to the extremes and mess up what God has already designed, and you see these extremes happening. So women become objects, and they actually become dehumanized. Uh, polygamy is right harems are right rape is right female infanticide Uh, men are more important more valued than women so let's kill female children so that we can have sons and make sure that our sons uh, become strong and i'm hoping we feel see the weight and we feel the weight of this this is this gets messed up and unless we as the church as god's people actually redefine it and learn to uh, learn to bring it back to where it was meant to be Uh, it ends up infiltrating in our churches as well. And so, as we look at today, uh, what I'm hoping is that we would actually see uh, one other, and I've got it actually in the middle there, um, blank. And it's complementarianism. And this is the idea, and it's founded on the truth about God as the trinity. So you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And equally, they are all God but they don't all have the same role. God the Father didn't come and put human life on, a yeah, human body on, when he came down to the earth. He sent God the Son to do that, Jesus. And they're equally God, but they actually have different roles. When Jesus came, he didn't do, come doing what he wanted to do. If you read the book of John, it's littered with Jesus basically saying, I'm here to do what my Father sent me to do. And so you have these different roles and different uh, positions of authority. But it's not like God the Father's like whip out, Jesus, you better do what I've got for you to do. The half's right. And Jesus isn't this silent doormat that uh, sits, sits below the Father and says, Okay, Dad, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it in fear and trembling and, uh, and without asking any questions. We know that Jesus asked questions. We know that Jesus said, You know what? God, if there's any other way for you to do this when he's bowing in the garden of Gethsemane sweating drops of blood if there's any other way God Father do, do, it, do it another way but whatever happens let your will be done so if I can question anyway we'll get to that uh, next week but this whole thing that the, within the Trinity there's different roles with equality and there's a celebration of that and there's unity And they can still be uh, together on it. And this happens within within marriage as well. When we consider men, women and marriage, where the husband and wife are equal in their value, worth and dignity and work in a complementary fashion in the God-designed roles that they've been given. That being, husbands being the head, lovingly, sacrificially, humbly leading their wives and family and wives submitting to their husbands as helper. Quite interestingly, there's a whole bunch of different people sitting here today, most likely. Uh, Some who have a very healthy marriage and it's probably just a good reminder for you to come back and say, okay, God, what's your design for it again? Let's just see, let's keep in check and let's come back in alignment. Maybe there's others sitting here today where marriage is, it's just not great. (laughs) It's just a slog. It is a hard slog. And uh, maybe there's opportunity for you to have, see the way God designed it to be and learn, and come back into alignment with what God wanted, and maybe uh, you're actually single today, and you're not intended to get married anytime soon. Uh, statistically, over half of you will become married. I'd look over here because there's mostly singles over here. Half of you, over half of you, will become married one day, and uh, and you can actually begin preparing for that and men you can learn to become men now rather than after you get married thinking that uh, marriage will help you and uh, make you the man that you need to be no it actually starts right now Uh, so let's go 1 peter chapter 3 verse 1 big introduction likewise wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. I just want to see that first part, likewise. Likewise means obviously something before in 1 Peter has actually been talking about uh, submission. Alright? And as you look back uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and chapter 1, the context basically is submission to people in authority. And so likewise means that uh, the wives and the husbands, the men and the women, actually are people in submission. Uh, They're in submission to their government. They're in submission to uh, maybe their boss at work. Uh, That submission is not just a thing for a woman, but that it's actually a thing for a man and a woman. And the big idea is that a man uh, would actually be submitting not just to himself. And if he did, it would probably tend towards the uh, extreme right over here. If he's only submitting to himself, but that a man would actually be submitting to Jesus and willingly coming in submission to following him, because ultimately, as I said, you go to the extremes and uh, it becomes messy. Then you move on and uh, and you think about the two extremes. The one extreme is to wimp out and be a passive husband who doesn't lead but does what he's told because that's easier. Your idea is that your wife does a better job than you, so you just sit back and let her do it. Maybe your wife is more educated than you and so you think that it's her responsibility to provide, protect and lead the family on the basis of her education. There's maybe been too many times where your wife has resisted you, so you've given up and let her have at it. And maybe there's times where your wife is more like your mother who tells you what to do and how to do it and you sit by and do whatever she says things haven't really changed since you left home and actually entered into marriage. Or you might end up becoming like a chauvinist who is abusive and who mistreats his wife. You speak all kinds of harsh words to her. You make threats and actually sometimes carry through on those threats, whether it's physically, emotionally, verbally, whatever. Your wife and family fear you because you're unkind, you're militant, and you've used physical violence or loud and abusive yelling to get your way. Your wife is often resisting you with the same temperament that you're showing her. And so you're just clashing all the time because you've got these two strong people having at it, trying to do the same job as each other, and uh, it's missing it. What I'd like to suggest instead is complementarian headship. Ephesians uh, uh, Ephesians 5, if you've got it there or if you'd like to make note of the reference, Ephesians 5 is a scripture that i often come to when uh, my wife and i are having an argument which happens obviously within a marriage uh, and i get to a point where i go i can't see a way out of this and i oftentimes will open up ephesians 5 and go all right here's what i'm called to do how am i going to do this in this situation this is tough Uh, i'm really annoyed i'm really frustrated that i'm not getting my way or that things aren't going the way i wanted them to and uh, and somehow i actually need to love like christ loved the church says this husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies we get two things from this one is that the marriage of a man and woman right now is actually meant to not it it, it doesn't end with the man and the woman in the marriage the marriage is intended the way God designed it was that the marriage would actually image the relationship that Christ has with his church and the way that Christ came down, the way that Christ lived and died for his bride, the church, even when she didn't deserve it, that's actually meant to be what we as married, married people are meant to do. And what you, when you get married, if you're not already married, uh, are meant to do. Our marriages are meant to reflect this beautiful relationship that Christ has with his church. That's its design. That's, a, that's one of its main intentions. If we only make it about love, if we only make it about sex, if we only make it about uh, ha- keeping each other happy, we're only getting this far in what it's meant to do. We've got, man, there's a glorious amount of opportunity uh, to glorify God within our marriage. So husbands, uh, sorry, Ephesians one twenty two says this also, And the Father God has subjected everything under Christ's feet and made him head over all things for the sake of the church. Husbands, your Christ-like, sacrificial, humble, self- selfless love and leadership of your wife is done with her well-being in the forefront. So and as a husband, as men, as you grow up to be men, uh, our leading and our desire to love our wives like Christ loved the church has it as with our wives at the forefront and her well-being and uh, her honour at the forefront. When I make decisions... When you consider sexual intimacy, when you date your wife, when you provide for your wife, when you protect your wife, you're doing these things with her well-being in mind before your own. It's not just for your good. Uh, If my identity is that I'm this amazing husband and uh, I am this amazing provider and I'm this amazing romanticist, whatever, uh, then probably you're at the centre. (laughs) Not Christ and not anyone else, particularly your wife. Husbands and men, ask yourself, is this the sort of love and leadership I show towards my wife? If not, then you're likely tending towards either the two extremes I mentioned at the start. So you're either tending toward the left or you're tending toward the right. Now we come to verse 7 in 1 Peter. Jumping around I know, uh, but let's look right in. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. What does this mean? Live with your wives in an understanding way. It means that husbands actually are intentional about the way they understand their wife. It means that they're actually intentional in uh, taking time to ask their wife questions about your, her spiritual walk. How are you going spiritually? How can I help you? How can I pray for you? It means that they're actually uh, asking intentional questions about her physical well being. Are you surviving well? How tired are you? How stressed are you? What am I going to be able to do to help out here? To understand her well. And it's also about her remote emotional well-being. It's about listening to her and making notes. Uh, Mark Driscoll showed me this uh, in particular where he has uh, just a notebook that he takes around with him everywhere. I forget what he calls it. Something. Anyway, uh, it's a notebook that he takes everywhere. And he's always listening and he's always asking questions, learning how can I actually be a good student and be like a study, doing study, taking notes about my wife and learning uh, how she's going at that time, at a particular time. So I can then go back to that and go, well, all right, here's how I can serve her. Here's how I can best love her. Here's how I can best sacrifice for her. Uh, so listening to your wife and making notes when t- she tells you her likes and dislikes, her interests, Dating her with these likes and dislikes in mind. Understanding her strengths and giftings and lead her and using those within the family and community. So no, you're not lording it over your wife and telling her this is what you need to do and putting a cap on the way that she can actually provide leadership. But instead you're actually working out who is this beautiful woman that I've got, that I've been given. What are her strengths? What are the gifts that God's given her? And how can I actually help her to be going and using those? Within the church, within our own family, within her work whatever it is and it's also about understanding her weaknesses and acting graciously and generously as you deal with those knowing that you also have weaknesses so yes your wife has amazing strengths but yes she has weaknesses and they're usually the things that are drawn out pretty quickly within a marriage all the weaknesses and the frustrations and the things that you don't really like about each other your job as a husband your job as a man is to lead her in those And as Christ laid down his life and as Christ sacrificed and loved his bride, the church, so you would also do the same, knowing your wife's weaknesses, knowing her strengths and loving her in that way. The next part of uh, chapter seven, uh, sorry, verse seven says this. So the first part was, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. If you're keen to come back next week, I'm going to talk uh, a little bit about this thing about the woman being the weaker vessel. Um, The big question um, for men as they consider the woman being a weaker vessel is what what are people meant to do when they see weakness? What are people meant to do when they see somebody or something that's weak? You're meant to go and you're meant to help it, protect it and defend it and, and, and provide for it. And so when the Bible uses this uh, particular language here, showing honour to the woman as the weaker vessel, uh, it actually is meant to be so that men would do what they're meant to do. That men, and particularly husbands, would defend and protect, and that the strength that they have would actually be used for the better of others, uh, not, just for them, not just for themselves, not just so they can have a six-pack and uh, have cut muscles. So, <coughs> showing honour. I've got a uh, I've got a list of I think about eight things here uh, so if you're keen to keen to write these down these aren't necessarily from the Bible but I think that they're littered throughout the Bible in different ways um, so husbands you can honor your wife in some of the following ways uh, and these are ways that yes some are biblical some are just uh things practically that you can do and so my hope is that they'll serve as a help for you in uh, learning to do what you're meant to do as a man and as a husband. Providing for her. 1 Timothy 5.8 has a particularly harsh verse uh, and a particularly harsh truth about men who don't provide for their families. Uh, It says this, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's a man's responsibility. It's a husband's responsibility within a family to actually provide for his family. This can look different uh, across, across the board, but uh, if we're looking at the Bible and if we're looking at the way that, that uh, God designed things, then we'll see that this is very strong throughout. The husband is there to actually provide for his wife. Consider Jesus. Consider the way that Jesus actually provides for his bride, the church. He works hard. <laughs> Jesus has worked extremely hard to the point of death so that his bride the church partly so that his bride the church would be provided for and so a husband's call is to provide for his wife maybe you're uh, not physically able to provide for your wife not physically able to provide uh, financially for your family well you are physically able if Usually you'll be mentally able to be able to think about ways and work out ways. How can I make sure that my family is well provided for? How can I make sure that my family is well taken care of? And you can work ways out in that. Honour her by working hard to take your position of man, father and provider seriously. Second way is to honour her socially. I think uh, in our culture particularly, uh, Australian culture is amazing at, at being sarcastic and amazing at uh, ripping on people. And yeah, it can be a cool joke and it can be funny, uh, but sometimes it can actually be taken too far. Maybe, I mean, you hear it when you're, uh, particularly as dudes, you hear it when you're out with other dudes and uh, they rag out on their wives or their girlfriends or whoever they're uh, partnered with um, for not letting you do something uh, that you really wanted to do. And you agree, don't be such a coward that's such a cop-out. Honour your wife. Tell your mates that you love her and desire, for, desire her over your mates. Uh, so this would be honouring her socially. Paying out on your wife. This may seem like an Aussie cultural thing to do. And I challenge you. Question it. Does your honouring her verbally and physically far outweigh the paying out? When you consider the way that uh, God's calling you to honour your wife... Are you you doing that way further, way more than what you're actually joking and uh, paying out and being sarcastic with her? Honour her with your time, third one. Honour your wife by dating her. I would suggest once a week, but uh, that's obviously open, that's not a law. Uh, Dating her. You dated her to go go out with her and uh, to look forward to intending to marrying her and then somehow maybe... Within the marriage, uh, when you get married, suddenly the dating stops. <laughs> and, uh, and it's just a real practical, easy thing to do as a man and as a husband to love her and honour her by dating her. I know your interests. Here's what you really love doing and I want to take you and do that just because I love you, just because I want to honour you. I want to serve you in that way. Uh, get the kids babysat, put them to bed and just enjoy special time together. Where well, your attention is completely on her. This comes from understanding your wife right back when I was talking about it. So when you're having conversations, be writing stuff down. I've got a file on my computer called Renee and I just note take all the time and uh, learning different ways to actually work the, work out what it is that she really enjoys and uh, the best way that I can serve her both in good and difficult times. Honour her physically. Sometimes it uh, it can get dropped off when you get married or maybe the further you get into your marriage this whole thing about honoring your wife physically maybe her body shape changes maybe her the way she looks changes when she has children whatever I heard uh, Mark Driscoll say one time that the uh, let me get it right here your standard of, of beauty is your wife and that includes every moment throughout her life when her body changes, when, uh, when she looks different. Uh, your standard of beauty is your wife, so you honour her physically. However she looks, because that's the beautiful woman that you marry. That's the woman that God gave to you and uh, you have a responsibility to honour her and enjoy her physically. Uh, honour her before and during times of intimacy. Intimacy. Uh, when you come and you desire to be intimate with your wife, it's, your hu- it's the husband's res- responsibility during that time and also before that time to honour her in the way that you speak to her. Not derogatory, not uh, having a bit of a rag out, a bit of a joke about the way she looks. No way. Work out ways to honour her, see her, and enjoy uh, speaking about her beauty. Honour her emotionally. Honouring your wife by esteeming her at every moment possible, in front of others and in front of your children. When uh, <coughs> uh, I don't want to hold myself up, and this isn't what I want to do, but uh, just as an example that hopefully uh, maybe it'll be a help for people. But anyway, uh, when I lie in bed at night, sometimes with Phoebe, and uh, putting her to bed, I just take every opportunity, or I want to take every opportunity I can, to be talking about Renee, my wife, uh, in a loving and a way that would honour her. And so sometimes I say, "Guess what?" She says, "What?" I think your mum is beautiful, and that's it. <laughs> and it's just a simple way that I can be honouring my wife in front of my children, so that they would actually have an image of the way that they're meant to be treated. Particularly for my daughter, because I want her to know what a man's meant to do with her in the future. Particularly for my daughter to know, yeah, Daddy really loves, Daddy really loves Mummy and really thinks she's beautiful. So honour her emotionally. Uh, write a love letter to your wife. Work out a way. Sing her a song. If you're a songwriter, sing her a song. <laughs> write a love letter. Work out ways. Write in the fog in the mirror. Whatever. Honouring her emotionally uh, as a man. Oi, there goes a page. <clears throat> be the initiator be the initiator of love, repentance and forgiveness as a man you're actually made to be strong and uh, if you look at the image of Christ and the church think about what Christ did uh, in relation to the church in relation to the people that he was trying to redeem and, and, uh, and bring into uh, life, into true life and you know that Christ actually initiated. We didn't make a decision and somehow on the earth go, okay, now it's time for Christ to come. Now it's time for Christ to come and do what what, uh, he needs to do so that we could sort this relationship out. No, God actually initiated from even before the creation of the world that Jesus Christ would come to the earth at a particular time and come and love people and serve people to the point of death, to the point of rising again, uh, so that he could redeem for himself a church. And in the same way, if husbands are going to love their wives, uh, then you'll actually be the initiator. Uh, in particular, when there's arguments and when there's, uh, when there's fights going on, husbands, you're going to be the ones initiating the forgiveness and the repentance, even if you know that it wasn't actually your fault. It wasn't Jesus' fault that we'd sinned and done the wrong thing. But he came and he made the necessary uh, decision, the necessary actions to be able to actually bring about forgiveness. And in the same way, husbands, in the middle or at the end of a fight or an argument or whatever's going on, you approach your wife and you work things out and initiate the forgiveness and the repentance process because that's the way we are designed to do it. Will there be times where your wife will come and do it? Absolutely. But it ought to be that men will be taking the lead in this particular area initiating love, repentance, and forgiveness. You pursue your wife like Christ pursued his bride, even to the point of death and when he didn't have to. The next one, number seven, decision-making. Honoring your wife during decision-making. Do not see your wife as a threat when making a decision. Instead, husbands, and this is just a few little guidelines, it's not the law, it's not necessarily written in the Bible, but husbands... When it is a minor decision, just do what will please your wife. When it is more major decision, talk openly and honestly about it. And wives will get to uh, look at that next week when we look at what it means to submit, even when you disagree, because it's actually possible and actually okay to submit when you disagree. Uh, and so we'll look at that next week. But uh, enjoy husbands going and making decisions together. But be prepared that you may actually have to take the lead even when your wife doesn't agree with you necessarily. Usually, there hasn't been times personally in our marriage where I've had to do that. Somehow, by the grace of God, Renee has had a change of heart and uh, it's actually come in alignment with what I think God's calling us to. Um, But uh, there may have to be times. And finally, with your children... Honour her with your children. I talked about this before, but taking every opportunity to think about how can I honour my wife and honour their mother in front of them? Uh, not just by what I say, but the way that I treat her, what I do uh, with, within our marriage. We talked about this before, but honouring the woman as the weaker vessel, physically and emotionally. And we talked about what the, uh, what the strong ought to do with the weak. The strong... As a husband and as a man, you are strong. You are made strong, and so you're meant to defend and protect, and fight for your wife, and fight for your uh, for your marriage, and fight for what God actually intended for it to be like. This next part is a interesting part. It's so that uh, your prayers may not be hindered. So it's pretty clear from this that if you don't do what you're meant to do as a man if you stray from what your manhood, if you stray from what it means to be a husband and to love your wife, it's actually going to have significant impact on your prayer and on your spiritual walk. This is a clear connection. And I mean, if you can't, you can't just skip over it. So maybe you could ask the question right now, within your spiritual walk, is it possible that the way you're treating your wife and the way you're actually in marriage uh, that your prayers are being hindered, that the way you, your spiritual walk, the way it 's going, may be because of the way you 're treating your wife, and because of the way you 're not doing what God 's called you to do as a husband, as a man. that 's a huge challenge, uh, but not an impossible one to actually see turn around. dishonoring the biblical call as a husband to love and cherish your wife affects your spiritual walk. The, uh, the fact that this connection has been made suggests that we as men and husbands need to keep these areas of our lives in check through the Holy Spirit and the Word. Here's an opportunity. We've, we've been opening the Word. We've been talking about what the uh, Bible is calling us to. So here's an opportunity to turn back to it. You could rebel and you could be, be hard and you could come up with uh, modern definitions and try to work it out yourself. But ultimately, uh, it's not going to be effective. <laughs> And it may actually hinder your spiritual walk. You could also do it through accountability. I was challenged the other week when Pete talked about uh, accountability. And the idea that we actually need to seek accountability. Not expect people to come and keep us accountable. Not expect people to come and serve us and uh, keep us accountable. Instead, we take the lead on it in our own lives. And we actually go and seek accountability which probably means you're going to have to be open and honest about what you're doing as a man, but also what you're doing as a husband to someone else so that they would be able to bring you to account. And it's not to bring you to account so that they can demolish you and destroy you because of how terrible you're doing. No, bringing people to account, accountability is actually meant to breathe life. Yeah, it will be challenging. Yeah, you'll be confronted like nothing else, but man, it's it's going to bring you life because you're actually coming into alignment with what God's calling you to do. I want to finish up with uh, with talking about it this way. Ultimately, uh, the way that husbands are, and the way that men are, and the way that they're not, the way that they pull to those extremes becomes a worship issue. Becomes an idolatry issue. Who are you actually holding up as more important than Jesus? Is it yourself? Are you actually being uh, your own idol? Typically, if you are, you're going to tend to the extreme. Uh, sorry, to your extreme right. Where well, you become the centre, you become dominant male, you become strong, you become abusive. Or maybe you're actually holding up someone else. Maybe it's your wife or maybe it's other people. See, so you become this, uh, this weak, effeminate man that you're not meant to be. The sinful tendency of men are worship issues. Either you worship yourself on the extreme right or you worship your spouse and become enslaved on the extreme left. Both are damaging for you and your family and the people around you. C.S. Lewis said it this way, Idols always break the hearts of their worshippers. Husbands, if you hold your wife up as an idol that she's not meant to be, it will break your heart. It will probably most likely break her heart as well. If you hold yourself up as an idol within your marriage and how good you are or maybe how brute you are and how strong you are, your heart will be broken. Not beyond repair, but it will be broken. There's a couple of things that marriage does. Marriage marriage will expose idols and functional saviors. Religion becomes a predominant idol in many. I can earn my way to God. So if you come to this and uh, you work out, yep, maybe I am failing in a few areas within my marriage and the way that I'm loving my wife and honouring my wife, you come to the end of this and go, all right, I've got to sort myself out here. I'm going to get this sorted. I'm going to become stronger. I'm going to lead better. I'm going to be an amazing man. Probably you're going to tend toward religion and it's going to become idolatrous and it's going to mess things up. It's probably not going to go all that well. But you come and you come humbly to Jesus. Repent of the things you're doing not so well. Repent of the things where you're sinning. You come to Jesus and he transforms you. Couple of practical suggestions for pursuing true worship in marriage. As a man, begin to ask yourself in the small stuff: Who am I worshiping here? What does repentance look like? Number two: Be a God-centered spouse and not a spouse-centered spouse. There's been times in my in, in our marriage uh, for Renee and I where it has just become the focus has just become on our marriage. And uh, it's, I, I've become very much a spouse-centered spouse. So I, I need to serve my wife. I need to love my wife. I need to... Uh, it, it just becomes completely centered around her. And ultimately, it's, it's come to some pretty low points because she ends up crumbling <laughs> under the pressure of, of what I'm trying to hold her up to be, of being my idol. And so when I'm a spouse-centered spouse, it's not going to go well within my marriage. So I need to shatter the idol which isn't shattering my wife. I need to shatter the idol and, and bring Jesus back to his rightful place of worship. Bring Jesus back. <clears throat> Point out evidences of grace in each other and don't get lost in idol hunts and miss, miss the big picture of God's glory. So wives, some of you uh, are sitting here and you're going, man, my, my husband, he's going pretty well or maybe he's not doing so well and it can become this idol hunt <laughs> Where are his idols? How am I going to show him what his idols are so I can change him and make him better? Uh, and probably it's not going to be helpful, but instead you pursue God's glory and what God's calling each of you to. <clears throat> and pray scripture for your marriage, focusing on worship of Christ and his redemption, redemptive work in you. Psalm thirty-four twenty-two says this, The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. There is hope for every man sitting here today. There is hope for every marriage sitting here today. And listening to this, wherever you are, there is hope that Jesus can redeem you. But it comes by confronting truth, comes by hearing truth and somehow responding to it in light of Jesus and in worship to Jesus. The wonder and mystery of marriage is actually ultimately all about God. In his love, sending his son for a sinful bride known as the church. Who Christ passionately pursued to the point of death to redeem her from sin and bring her back to true life I'd just like to uh, finish on this particular quote it's by a guy called uh, Jay Adams he uh, is a heavy lifter in the biblical counseling movement over in uh, in the States Is it the States or, or Britain the States yeah, Jay Adams He says this, most marriages develop their characteristic patterns not by design but by drift. This could be applicable to men as well, young men sitting here. Courses of least resistance, following one's own desires and the like, in time develop into patterns. But you will never drift into God's pattern. It will come only by repentance, by prayerful understanding and by conscious decision to follow it. The decision must be backed by continued daily awareness of what you're doing and a a repetitive effort to realize God's design in all you do. There is hope and there is responsibility that uh, I'm hoping that we as men within the project would take really well and that we would teach our young boys when they ask us what does it mean to be a man Marriage is a significant way to show that, but uh, not the only way. Husbands and men, I believe we must be called to account for our headship within the home and the family. Ultimately, if you cannot do what, sorry, if you cannot or do not want to live, according to the Bible and according to what God wants, you're not fighting for women's rights. You're not fighting against traditionalism. You're not fighting against what I'm saying or what the law says. You're fighting against God himself and his truth and the life that he actually intends for every one of you. The love that you have for one another which includes headship and submission accordingly is a response to the love that Jesus showed transforming you and bringing you to each other as a husband and a wife. Husbands and men, uh, I'm keen for us to stand up and uh, to take our responsibility and we're going to pray together. Um, In particular, that we would be men within the project who would uh, follow God's design and God's plan of of doing this, particularly in marriage. So can we stand together, husbands, men, young boys, young men? Lord God, uh, I thank you for your word and I thank you that uh, it, brings to, it brings us to account in a really healthy and special way. God, where there's responsibility that needs to, t- needs to be taken, we can't take it on our own uh, as men and as husbands. But we do need to take it, Lord, and I pray uh, and I ask that you would give us grace to be able to take our responsibility well, to really truly define and, and, and continually defining uh, what it means to be a man. And God, within the project, pro- this would have profound effects upon women, that it would actually free women because we actually love women. We don't want to see them squashed down like a doormat. We want to see them honored and cherished the way they're meant to be and loved. So I pray that we would take our responsibility to love our wives well, to honour them, and to cherish them, not as idols, but in the way that they were designed to be, to image Christ and the church. Help us not to drift, God. Help us to stand convicted, knowing the truth, and coming forward in the truth to doing what you're calling us to do. Thank you, Lord, for marriage. Thank you that it's instituted by you. It's designed by you. Lord, as we uh, continue to learn and to continue to grow in uh, in our marriage, in our marriages, what it means to be a husband and what it means to be a wife, God, this would breathe so much life and inject so much uh, life within our body here at the project. Thank you that your Holy Spirit is here to help. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, please do the necessary work in leading us towards repentance and bringing about lifelong change for your glory and for your name. Amen. Amen.